Uh, welcome to the Shoecast today. We've got two fantastic people joining us. Um, we've got Ryan Anderton, and his, his charity is all about helping people with their mental health. And it's worth talking about is if you're interested in learning more, which I'm sure you will be. And we've got Steve Phillip joining us from the Jordan Legacy charity today as well. Over the last 18 months or so, we've probably all been in the, the situation where we've, we've, one way or another, we've, we've felt down, we felt low, we felt we need someone to talk to, we need a bit of help, mental health, and the data and the science has been the surveys behind all of this backs this all up. So there's been lots of challenges, let's put it politely, during the pandemic about affecting people's mental health. Um, so today's talk and conversation, we're just going to tap into some tips, some things to look at, look out for advice and learn a little bit more about where you can go to get help. I suppose that's an often often an overlooked problem, particularly along um, males in particular. Um, yeah, so I suppose I'll throw it out there. So you guys want to introduce yourself? I'm Ryan Anderton. I am the founder of It's Worth Talking About. Uh, it's Worth Talking About started in March 2020 after the sudden and shock um suicide of a local Oxenhope Keithley lad called Tom Marshall at the young age of 25. Um, it was just before COVID sort of hit us. Uh, so we were stop-started through 2020. Uh, but the, since the start of 2021, we've had a continuous face-to-face um, peer support groups that we run for both men, men and women. Uh, we currently run 18 groups across the Bradford area, uh, separate ones for men and women. Uh, we've got a women's group in Headingley. Um, the other groups are in Howarth, Keithley, Silsden, Wilsden, Queensbury, Bingley, Saltaire and Tong. And uh, we're soon to launch our first youth initiative so that will be like a youth group, um, but with a heavy focus on um, emot- regulating emotion, learning what is mental health and what isn't mental health, and really starting to tackle the conversation of it's worth talking about mental health from a younger age instead of leaving it until uh, adulthood. Um, it's worth talking about is very sadly grown through the misfortune of other young men, young women, and the families associated to the the suicides that have happened within our local area. And it's worth talking about is here working with GP practices, lots of other mental health charities, wellbeing organisations, um, the NHS, the mental health teams uh, within the area to give people a close, local, friendly drop-in centre where they can come communicate with other men or women, be heard in a confidential, safe environment, and we are looking to continuously grow. Thank you. Yeah, I suppose it's... Yeah, I like the way you phrased that at the beginning there, right? You've sadly grown. Um, in a way, it's good that you obviously... You grow in the spot network to help people, but on the, the, the sad part, obviously more and more people feel like they need help and support, um, which is obviously a challenge we're all trying to tackle and get those numbers down, I suppose. So yeah. your best case scenario is to have no support, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we, 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 we don't want to have um, families suffering from the effects of suicide. 
We don't want them to be grieving and going through the bereavement process. Uh, we don't want people to be depressed, anxious, um, and suffering from any other forms of mental health or life difficulties, because often it is just life that um, affects us, um, debts, employment, housing, bereavement, relationships, all these sort of things add stresses and strains to life. And we'd much rather people not need us and for us to not exist. But the sad reality is, is that the NHS is overrun, the GPs are overrun, there's not enough services for the people that require um, the support and help. Absolutely, well put. Steve, I suppose, anything to add? And then I suppose leading into your, a little bit more about the Jordan legacy. Yeah, I, I mean, I just echo what Ryan's saying there at the moment. We know we've got a health service that's uh, stretched way beyond capacity um, and it's increasingly falling on kind of private sector and in individual groups um, uh, such as it's worth talking about and the work that we're doing at the Jordan Legacy and, and many others that I meet and speak with to kind of pick up uh, the pieces, so to speak. Um, and, you know, a sim- in terms of my journey, very similar to Ryan's in terms of timelines, um, uh, we created the Jordan Legacy, which is currently a community interest company, a CIC. Uh, we're literally just putting the registration paperwork in to become a full-blown charity. Uh, trustees are all in, in place. And um, that was born out of the tragic event on uh, December the 4th of 2019 when my then 34-year-old son Jordan took his own life. Um, up until that point, I'd worked in the world of consultancy and training, Chris, as you know, and uh, um, you know, my life really got turned completely upside down at, at, at that point as we moved into um, 2020. Um, made a decision relatively quickly within the following weeks that I was not going to continue doing what I, I did. And we, we created the Jordan Legacy initially on the back of um, an article that I published on LinkedIn that, that really got a kind of global outpouring of support, but also got lots of people coming to me who were struggling and considering suicide. And and I needed a method to be able to respond to them. And the Jordan Legacy was initially probably just going to be a signposting website and resources um, as I started to learn about mental health myself, you know, because I was, uh, as I often say, on a scale of one to 10, two years ago, I was a good solid two. That was my knowledge of mental health and suicide. Um, it's probably gone up a bit since then through the work we're doing. Um, but subsequent conversations and meetings uh, and, and networking with people globally around suicide prevention soon made me kind of go in a direction where we were going to look much more strategically at the whole issue of suicide, the practical act of suicide particularly, and, and how do we prevent that practical act um, and the way to do that is by putting in place practical solutions, such as Ryan's doing with his peer groups. You know, that's a real evidence-based practical solution. So that's um, kind of the brief kind of synopsis of our journey so far. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, uh, thank you. it's comfort from my point of view. I've been knowing you two for years now, knowing where I, you can go and get help if you need it. It's, it's, there are good, genuine people, good, genuine groups around and available. But I think that's my naivety kicking in perhaps there is if I didn't know you two, how would I get in, I suppose, how would I look for that help? Is there any tips to help people there? If they're perhaps listening to this podcast in a month's time, two months time, thinking, oh no, shit, I'm really struggling here. Uh, I need some help. Where could they start if they don't know where to go? 
I think I think this is one. Yeah, just uh, just going to say just briefly. This is one of the challenges that that there is almost too much uh, out there in a way, um, and each person's needs are very individual. So I could I could now Google you know you know I'm experiencing anxiety or I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling sad, feeling lonely, and I will get a huge list of of charities now if i know what i'm about um i can probably learn to filter those down to a more localized level but remember at the point i'm searching for this i'm i'm in a, maybe a crisis situation or certainly not thinking straight so uh, um it's not going to be a very smart search so the challenge is if i see whatever it might be as a search result how do i know that that's kind of right um for me so so i think this is 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 one of the issues how, how do we kind of pull together a lot of these resources that, that are out there, maybe at a localised level, certainly a national level, so there is more consistency around where we're kind of all pointing people to. Um, easier said than, than done. In our area, Steve, so the Keatley and Worth Valley um, and Air Valley, um, we have a tool that's called treacle.me, um, which is an app which was created by a local Howarth-based nurse. And they, she has all of the sort of social enterprises and the local health and well-being food banks, mental health groups, peer support organisations on there. We have it on our website um, as being a local signposting tool and um, something that all our facilitators use we, I work um, as a health coach at um, the one of the local GP practices two days a week. We use that here um, as the signposting tool for our local area. So whether it be that people need debt advice, relationship advice, uh, housing advice, food banks, mental health, in whatever format that may be, um, whether it's self-harming or just that people need to make friends. Treacle.me is the tool that we use for that locally. And it's an absolutely fantastic resource that is very, very simple to use and does signpost you to the sort of five most relevant organisations. We're very lucky in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's really useful to know. I mean, we're, we're, we're tending to operate through the Jordan Legacy at, at a kind of a national level. And therefore, you'll yeah. we'll see things like the Hub of Hope, for example, on our website. And um, so uh, you, we've not got regionalised yet, but that's maybe one of the things that we would look to do going going forward. But you see, you know, that, that's, that's brilliant, isn't it? We're here having this, this conversation now. I've learned something that I didn't know before so that anyone locally gets in touch you know, well, I'm going to be on treacle.com um, or, or advising them there locally. So, um, you know, I think it's why it's so important that these conversations take place, um, that we, we get the word out there. So, no, thanks for that, Ryan. That's, that's really useful. Yeah. And, and the other the other thing um, that more and more GPs are doing now is um, employing social prescribers, uh, people that will direct you to organisations within the community <clears throat> To receive community support in addition to maybe taking some form of medical clinical prescript prescriptive uh, treatment but I think that the key is is that medication is only one aspect of that um, and medication isn't for everybody there is solutions out there in the community that can help and support people um, and it's worth talking about is just one of the many that you talk about Steve 
Yes, one of the challenges, of course, is, you know, we mentioned the number of doctors are socially prescribing, but, you know, if I go back to Jordan's situation and, you know, a couple of weeks before he took his own life, the doctor there asked him, you know, are you considering suicide? Jordan said no, understandably, probably in that situation. Um, so he was given the antidepressants that he kind of gone back for as a repeat prescription and given a leaflet to to a local mind um charity called mend for, for men and that was kind of it but there was, there was no kind of well actually there's a choice there's a number of options for you here so it's good to hear that in some cases doctors are doing that but equally we know that isn't happening right across uh, the board and, and you know we found that leaflet to mind on his desk the, the day after on his kitchen table you know and you know unfortunately the email address uh, wasn't working um which is a separate conversation I had with them at that time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, social prescribing, I think, is, is a really important part of supporting GPs who we know in most cases don't have the training uh, and are not equipped to deal with it and don't have the time. Um, so, the, you know, that would be a really important way to go because the piece of advice we all give is where's your first, first port of call if you're feeling suicidal, contact your GP or A&E if it's really progressed so the gps need to be better equipped Absolutely. Um, i think um, from the position that i'm in sat in a gp's surgery now um preparing to listen to my next patients and um, who would normally be seen by a gp for 10 12 minutes and um, and in most cases um, and have left with antidepressants instead gets to come and sit with me for 45 minutes an hour um, and we get to really talk about the root causes of why they're feeling the way that they are um, so that I can understand what services will support them within that within their community and um, really sort of does give me hope that GP's practices are sort of really taking note of the importance of mental health and the cost of mental health to their surgeries and their businesses and really um, listening to what the patient needs instead of prescriptively assuming that sertraline, whatever medication, will numb that pain. That pain doesn't go just by taking medication. And, and in fact, you know, again, relating to Jordan's case, you're absolutely right, Ryan. You know, um, we, we know that often these antidepressants will take you lower for at least a period of a week to 10 days before they'll lift you back up. But unfortunately, that's exactly what happened to Jordan. He was at that extremely low point, took the antidepressants with a, a follow-up due, I think, 14 days later, you know, too long. Um, and, um, of course, he went lower as a result of the medication and, and got to that sense of complete hopelessness at that at that point. So, um, so yeah, no, all, all for this. And I was speaking to a lady just, just recently um, uh, where we're connected with who's doing some work in the south of the country and is actually today launching something called Practice Hope across 14 um, GP practices in Southwest London, uh, you know, very similar type of initiative. I'm, I'm waiting to hear from her exactly how that works. But I think the more this happens, um, the more of a chance we've got of, of kind of saving lives, I think. I completely agree. Lovely. So I suppose that's obviously on the, we're talking there about what the individual could potentially do if they're individually thinking about you know, the, the negativity that's going on in their lives. I suppose if we're trying to, so 
just guide the conversation more towards the workplace then if you're sat maybe working with colleagues are there anything you can maybe are there any telltale signs is there anything you could look at and how important is mental health in a work you can see got molly and fran there is there anything doing the, in the workplace to help any of these issues well certainly from my experience i mean i'm running a lot of workshops with organizations who've got employees in the UK and across Europe at the moment and they're all having very different situations because the pandemic is affecting things in different ways in different countries and some of them are still in quite acute lockdowns and we're not and um, so there's a, a lot of very different circumstances out there but if we take the the UK um, you know we've got a situation where for many people the opportunity to return back to work exists now um, which everyone would think immediately well that's a good thing we'll all be kind of back together but that's obviously bringing its own levels of anxiety and worry I spoke to a lady just from Harrogate the other day um, who said my husband's gone back to work today for the first time she said, I'm really worried. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really worried that he's going to be okay. So we've got these kind of things going on. Um, the signs, in, you know, and I know Ryan will, will certainly test, testify to this as well, is that there are signs, and these signs can often be subconscious, unconscious or conscious, really. But it could be in the language people are using more frequently, such as I've had enough of this and I'm fed up with this or, you know, this is all too much or whatever. You might see someone getting stressed, so very physical, to just very subtle signs, such as someone who would once upon a time be kind of well-groomed, well-shaved, good appearance, all of a sudden not looking like they're taking care of themselves. Perhaps on the Zoom call, they'd always be the first to put their hand up and ask a question. Now the camera's not even turned on. Um, you know, the, the, so there are, there are lots of different signs, I'm sure, Ryan, from your point of view, you've got to kind of add to that, I'm sure. We do a lot of work with um, schools and colleges and businesses within the area doing mental health talks and running sort of mini it's worth talking about sessions um, over a period of weeks. And um, I think throughout COVID, um, the, the signs of... Um, a poorer mental health have been harder to um, to see, like you say, um, not having to have video on for your Zoom call, people being less vocal than they usually would be. Um, but I think that now that we are opening up and that people are returning back to work, it is those signs um, of, like you mentioned, scruffiness, being late for work is often a sign of just people just can't get out of bed. They've got them nervousnesses and anxieties and then fears of uh, being out. Um, or the, the sheer depression of, actually, I've got to drive half an hour or an hour to get to work now. And it's not part of their normal routine anymore. A lot of people have got comfortable being at, at home. So I think that lateness is a, is a big one. But then I think when we hear a lot about the sudden suicides of many people, it often seems to be that they're the life and soul of the party people, the people that are always bubbly and bouncy, and they're, they're out on a Friday night or they're part of the football club, the rugby club or whatever, and quite often they're the ones that we completely least expect and they're sort of the reasons why the shock of suicide hits people so hard, because there was just no telltale signs. Um, but maybe that being so bubbly and masking it so well 
is a sign in itself. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. I th- you know, I think you look at Jordan and, you know, I have to obviously share my story of Jordan, you know, outwardly, you know, kind of well-groomed, looked good until kind of the last week or two and he was working from home remotely and not looking good at all. But um, he had this huge network of people. He was always the kind of life and soul of the party when he got together with his mates, uh, all the dance moves, everything. Um, uh, he was there for everybody else um, and, and would have looked to all the world as if he added everything to, together. But we also know that particularly, you know, in, in those final sometimes hours or days when someone's kind of absolutely made up the, the, their mind that, that, that they have a plan to take their own lives, that often that's when their mood can really lift uh, significantly because, of course, they have a way out of the pain. And um, so it, it can be really mistaken to think, oh, they've recovered, that they're okay now. And um, maybe the antidepressants have kicked in and worked. So I think you're right. That in itself can be a sign just to be cautious to say, well, why has this person's mood suddenly uh, raised so much? Yeah, I think that I like the way that you term that in regards to there's almost a, an euphoricness about having finally decided that this pain is going to end, that they've found a way out. And that does, um, in a very strange way, provide people with a very uh, lots of clarity about actually this all makes sense now and the jigsaw's been put together. Mm. And, and I won't feel like this. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. That does that all makes perfect perfect sense. And I think, sad, yeah, my my only experience I've come across is I remember exactly that kind of guy, right? You mentioned about the footballer, footballer at university. We were on the night out, you know, lads on night out, um, drinking really himself, herbaceous, whatever the word is, really outgoing, and then went home and suicide. No, no, no signs at all. So I think. It's quite tricky. It's probably where I'm getting out with that. You don't, you don't know what, what what's good and what's a bad sign inherently, especially if you're not familiar with the with the whole issues and what what to look out for. I suppose I don't know. It sounds like quite a tricky subject. <laughs> it, it is a difficult subject, and I think that that's why we do need to talk about it, and that's why we need to check on our mates and our colleagues and our family. And it might get really, really tedious asking. How are you doing? Are you okay? But we need to continue to do that so that people, when they're not okay, are able to say, I'm not okay, and can you help me? I think there's another important angle to this as well, because, um, you know, we just described, you're just describing there, Chris, the guy who we all go out with and have, have a drink and he's on good form. And, um, uh, you know, everything looks fine. You know, there's absolutely no reason why you would ask the question. Yeah. at that point and this person goes home and and uh, you know ends up taking their life or self-harming or whatever so i think one of the issues particularly is as and ryan says it's about you know not worrying about asking you know too much but also we need to create an environment and this is particularly important in the workplace where people feel more comfortable in opening up in the first place rather than hiding it away um and you know i think about jordan's situation that a couple of weeks before he took his life um he was under some pressure at work um he in fact was kind of called into these line managers office and torn off a strip for you know for being behind with a project now as it subsequently turned out and jordan knew this this was as a result of the managers further up the tree not getting their part of the project done um and i think he, he kind of left that office and he just said i was just kind of furious 
Uh, and I just went back in and I thought, I'm not having this. Um, but as he kind of said, right, this, this is unfair, but I also want to let you know what I'm going through. Um, and, and he finally talked for the first time at work about his mental health issues. Now, this was five years on from first being diagnosed with clinical depression. Work had no idea. Maybe a couple of close colleagues there. So, you know, the question has to be asked is, you know, had there been a culture and an environment where it was really made okay to, to open up and talk, and in fact, actively encouraged, would Jordan have been able to open up much sooner? Would management therefore have been very different in their approach? Because the irony behind this is that when he opened up to his line manager, she turned around and said, well, let me tell you why I've just been off for 12 weeks. Yeah. So you go, really? So nobody's talking about it. The line manager has mental health challenges, has been off for 12 weeks. Uh, her team member does. None of, neither of them know. So, so uh, and, yeah. Sorry, Steve. Just, well, just to, to the word there, and I'm just trying to put in on this, is that encouraging people to, to, to talk about in their cases and to build that culture. Mm. So we're, we're a small team, small business. How, how do you go about building that culture, getting people to, to feel good. I know everyone else, oh, how are you doing? That, that throwaway comment. I know, I think it might have been Ryan, you would you have said, ask twice. I think, yeah, I think if that's you, so you ask twice, how are you doing? But oh, I'm good, I'm all right, thanks. But how are you doing? With me, and I'm sure that Steve will resonate with this, because we talk so openly about our mental health and our journey and our experiences, the people around us do feel comfortable talking to me. Um, about how they're feeling. It doesn't matter whether it's my brother, my dad, uh, the facilitators at our groups, um, the people that attend our groups are complete, utter strangers. People are aware that within Keithley, within the surrounding areas of where we are, um, going as far as um, even the, the Andy's Man Club movement um, that was so powerful to me in my early days of recovery, that the more people that speak honestly and openly, um, people then gravitate towards them people um, to, because they know that they, they won't be judged and they won't feel uh, strange or alone in going through their problems because other people are, are talking about it openly. So it is, it's about having more and more people just talking and, and being prepared to listen to others. Yeah, I mean, it does resonate with me, Ryan. And funny enough, oddly, I hadn't really kind of, that hadn't twigged with me for some reason. But but yeah, certainly within my circle, because I talk about it very openly, then others are able to be really open, you know, with them, themselves. And uh, um, so that kind of, you know, cements that that point, really. Um, but, I, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to have spoken with dozens and dozens of em employees and asked the question, you know, what is it you need from, from your employer to feel, you know, the term we've used is psychologically safer at work uh, rather than physically safer. Uh, and they've come out with, you know, other things, but, but so often, you know, said we, we want, you know, just take some very simple things that because of pressures of time right now and working remotely, most team meetings are held via Zoom. Now, whether this is managers thinking that they don't want to take up any more time than they need to on a Zoom meeting, what happens is every meeting, team meeting, is straight into business, um, straight into the order of the day. And what employees are saying, we, we're not getting that time to go for a coffee break, chat amongst each other, uh, but there's no social interaction going on. So we want more of that kind of team 
spirit that we've lost because we're not not there. Some are saying that we we want a place where there's a dedicated room, an office, not one that I have to book, but it's kind of there that if I need to go and have a chat with someone, there's someone you know for us to, to go. We we need managers that have much stronger emotional intelligence and, and EQ skills rather than just skills on the actual job who who are trained to look out for these signs but are equally trained to have that real you know conversation with uh, empathy um you know so many things but what we're talking about is a complete shift of culture where kind of employee well-being is at the top of the tree recognizing that if it is at the top of the tree everything else will follow and you'll have a happy workforce a workforce that can thrive as well um, instead, what we do, we focus everything on performance and targets, and then we throw in well-being if we've got time in the budget. Or, oh, by the way, we don't have a budget, but I'm sure we can find some money somewhere. Oh, that's that's good of you. Um, it's just it, it's completely the wrong way around. Within the workplace, we've had a huge um, culture change of the past 10, 15, 20 years in regards to physical health and safety. Mm. Um, and health and safety has gone mad when it comes to physical risks to the extent where now you get told how to lift up the box and how to sit in your chair properly. But these, these policies have not been um, integrated properly for a mental health safety um, policy and practice within the workplace. And they're needed. Um, it's all well and good saying, oh, you go speak to Linda, she's your mental health first aider. Um, but you've got to be able to provide people with that time and that opportunity to take um, leave from the desk or from the stacking of boxes and shelves uh, to actually go speak to Linda because she's your mental health first data. Mm. It's it's almost like, yes, we will tick this box, we've got a mental health first data, but your targets are so strict that you're not allowed to go see it. It's, it, needs, it does need a, a change where mm. physical health and mental health are on an equal footing. I, I think that's right. I mean, you take a call centre or someone like that where you're absolutely on target to make those calls through the day within a certain time frame. There's even probably a bell still in the office, so I don't know if they still do that sort of thing, but uh, they probably do, don't they? But, um, um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, where is that opportunity for me to say, look, I just need to take a time out here and, um, and go and have that conversation? So I put your put your employer's hat on, I suppose, if I'm putting my own employer. So would you would you be fair in saying that you really should build that? I think when you're sat in front of a computer like we are now, you're supposed to take five minutes out of every hour to, to take the health and safety box so you get your eyes and all that stuff. But do you think we also need maybe extend that and say, right, well, you need to take five minutes, ten minutes every or whatever number it is, go for a walk, go for, go out at lunchtime, stand up, do some burpees, I don't know what, do something. Have a conversation with your colleague about something random. Pick a random talk out. I don't know. I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying, do we think we need to do more to encourage that types of behaviour or those types of behaviour? I think so. You know, an employee on a workshop said to me the other day, uh, after I run a session, she said, what, 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 what I would like to see, she said, personally, is I would like these kind of sessions to be compulsory. So we have compulsory courses that we have to go on for everything else. I'd like mental well-being to be compulsory. So in a way, what you're saying, Chris, is, it, it, yeah, there needs to be built into the processes, if, if you like, um, you know, the recognition that mental health and taking some time out is important. And as, as your line manager, 
when I come round and maybe have a daily review with me, you know, with you, tell me about your day, how you, how you've been feeling today, you know, what sort of pressures do you feel under, whatever the questions are. Have you taken some time out? Can I ask you? Have you been away from your desk? Have you been out to get some fresh air? Um, have you been looking after yourself today? That's yeah, a really simple conversation. You don't need too much EQ to kind of have that kind of conversation. I think it's got to come across with sincerity as well, because I can imagine some <laughs> jobs where it's just like, how are you? Have you done this? Tick, 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 tick. No, and just fobbing it off. Yeah, as, long as, as long as they don't turn up with a clipboard, Chris. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Ryan, you were about to say something. I've, I've been into your workplace, Chris, and um, it, you've, you've got the dog in the office. It's a very relaxed environment. Um, and having that, having that pet in the office, for most people, um, is, is a great thing. It's a, it's a relaxing. Pets have proven to be mental health tools um, to certain people. I'm allergic to dogs, so they're not great for me. Um, but I think you can use that culture from the top, um, whereby it is relaxed. Yes, people get their work done um, because they enjoy what they're doing, they enjoy who they're working for in the environment that they're in. And I think that's vitally important um, and quite often under-recognised that if you do provide a relaxed uh, workplace where people enjoy their job um, without too much stress and strain and pressures and targets and all that sort of thing, they actually improve their work and, and their productivity. Uh, so you allow people to sort of manage themselves a little bit more. And through that, they look, they, they do look after their own well-being more and don't feel so pressured and stressed from the powers that be. Yeah, like that. Thanks for the shout out there, Ryan. Just to blow my own drill a bit further. <laughs> the dog's asleep and then they, these guys were laughing at me talking about that. We're actually going away for a week together as a team at the end of October. So we've got a barn in the countryside. We're on working week, working week. Um, better work in the morning, better team stuff in the afternoon. Um, but we're all kind of looking forward to it. You know, no, probably make or break whether we actually kill each other or not. But I was going to say, Chris, Chris, was, was that an order from the top? You're coming away with me. No, absolutely not. In fact, it was Rachel's fault. We were like, oh, well, let's look look for a, a week away. Oh, there's a big barn here. Oh, well, that'd be a good idea. Let's take the team. And then we'll, oh, well, we'll ask them, see if they want to come. Um, and they both snapped around. So I said, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to come. No, Emily. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get confirmation. Yeah, hopefully. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, so one, one final bit I was wanted to talk about, I think Ryan touched on it a little bit there, was I suppose the future. We've gone through a pandemic. We've had a life of working before that. With hybrid working, flexi working, remote working, in the office, out of the office, downsizing, further, oh, loads of, to go out there. Um, I suppose how, how do you feel that the the impact over the, as we're changing the way we do business over the next 12 months, 14 months, whatever it is, is it, as it goes to more flexi or remote, what, what do you think those are changes are going to have an impact on people's health and mental health in particular? Any, any thoughts? I, I think that, I think we are seeing already and we've seen it on the news a lot. And I, I know conversations I've had with businesses locally here that, that we, we are seeing permanent changes to, 
to workplace structures, uh, downsizing particularly uh, of offices. I know of one large firm here that, that's kind of removed the whole lower floor of their business now, and they're going to be working remotely and having the team come in for team meetings once or twice a week. Um, so I think, we, first of all, we're going to see many um, places change the whole structure um, about coming into the office. Uh, there are, is a lot of debate, and again, it was on the news this morning, about the studies that have been done in, in other countries now around four-day weeks. Uh, that's a really interesting discussion taking place at the moment because all the evidence would suggest there's even more productivity by giving people that extra day off and, and realigning how they work on the other four days. Um, and going back to what Ryan was saying as well about giving people can control over over that work time more as well. I don't think anybody turns up to work to do deliberately do a bad job. I think they're just put in a situation where they often end up doing a bad job because of the, the circumstances they find themselves in. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, we're going to see some changes there uh, to businesses generally. Um, but I still think we're going to have, uh, you know, a period sometimes still of uncertainty, of anxiety. Companies can do whatever they like now about putting safeguarding processes in place. But if if my colleagues, if I'm worried that my colleagues are not going to adhere to those, whether that's a one-way street to the canteen uh, or whatever it would be, how are we going to manage that? How are we, for want of a better phrase, how are we even going to police that to ensure that actually people do behave? It's a little bit like wearing masks out. You know, how are we going to make sure that everyone does the right thing? Um, as far you know, if that's the right thing, you know that everybody does that. So I think there's going to be a, a degree of anxiety, a bit of social anxiety going on still. Um, um, but I think we've got a period of time to get over before everyone feels really comfortable and really certain about how this is all going to work. So um, it's not business as usual, I don't think. No, it's, it's weird. I mean, just yeah, we 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 had our first ugly social last couple of weeks ago. And that was a real life event. Oh my God, we went to one emperor before, I think it was the first day before we officially locked down last March, last year. Um, and it was, you know, I'm not going to lie, we felt a bit anxious about that, going into an, an environment. Knew most people there, great, love being the social, looking forward to it. But there's still something inside me a bit like, okay, we've done, is it a handshake? Is it a fist bump? Is it an elbow? Is it a wave? Is it a cuddle? Is it a hug? Is it a kiss? Is it what? That whole anxiety around what the, the social protocol until you got there, it's like, actually, you know what, I'm just going to offer an handshake and see what comes back. I think there's a great comedy sketch due from somewhere to show a networking event where everyone hugs and then runs off into a corner and does a lateral flow test immediately afterwards. And then hops on a Zoom call to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. Anything to add to that, Ryan? Sorry. Because we speak to so many people each week, um, we, we see a, a real cross-section of um, the, the local population. And there's a lot of people that are really enjoying working from home. Um, when I look at the mental health impacts um, of working from home, it is almost like 50-50. Some love it, some hate it. Um, but there's quite a significant socioeconomic benefit um, to working from home. People aren't having to pay as much for petrol or for train fares or for parking or for travel. And people are really reaping the rewards from that aspect of, um, of their work-life balance. Um, and yet some people 
have been really, really affected by working at home, almost being isolated, being on their own because they don't have a partner or children present. And um, to the other extent where people are being overwhelmed by spending so much time with their children, with their partner, and it's almost home-home balance then. And people aren't having um, time to themselves. And that's becoming quite a concern for a lot of people that they're not getting out to go watch the football or the rugby or go to have teas or coffees with their friends and go shopping. It's almost become home is everything now. Um, we're ordering off Amazon and we're doing just eat and people, people need to start getting back outside. And um, at the start of COVID, everybody nearly took up the let's go for a walk for an hour. Um, we were going out on the Howarth Moors and I've never seen so many people. But it's almost flipped on its head now where a lot of people are home and home is all they've got. So I think one of the big changes that um, COVID needs to bring now is to tell people to get back outside again and mm -hmm. do them things that you were doing previously. Um, home isn't just home if you work from home. Get out of course. Um, and if you are working within the workplace, enjoy being at home again um, because home's a wonderful place. Yeah, great point, Ryan. I think you know it, it's you know people could start resenting their own homes soon, and that that's not going to be a, a, a healthy situation at all. So, one thing I'd love to see stay or become part of business practice is I've had quite a few walking meetings instead of going sitting down and doing a handshake and sat on the table, boardroom table in the suit and tie or whatever, um, or being on Zoom. Actually, meeting up and going for a walk, 15, 20 minute walk. Still talking business, you know, getting your small talking business, but you're getting the exercise, you're getting the fresh air. Mm -hmm. I've loved doing that a few times um, over the last six months. I, I hope that, well, in fact, I'm going to encourage that from my perspective to, to, to do more of that. Uh, I, I, I think it's crucial. I mean, I had one the other day on the stray in Harrogate, an hour and a half. Uh, coffee was cold by the end uh, and my legs were tired. Uh, but I thought, well, you know, I've done that. And I, again, someone I was speaking to this morning who daily now goes out for a walk. And it's his, of course, it's my walking office. He said, I've been talking to Australia today, uh, a group of people there, just, just while I'm out walking. Uh, I'm not sure whether they had the same wind and gale blowing down his phone that I did when I spoke to him this morning. But uh, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting concept and, and one that works because we have the tools. You know, we, we can do these things now. So why why should we just sit behind a desk and have that conversation um, when we could have it out walking somewhere, as long as it's not a hurricane or hammering it down, perhaps? Yeah. We, can, we can keep that. Uh, I suppose I'm conscious of time. Hey, I suppose maybe if we could close out with a, a final thoughts, how we can get in touch with you guys, obviously, individually or learn more about what you, you guys are doing um any closing statements i suppose we'll mask in there if you do you want to go first steve maybe uh yeah thank you thank you chris yeah so i mean essentially just a very quick recap you, you know the jordan legacy we we have it's the jordan legacy.com uh we have a huge number of resources on on there for mental health and suicide prevention on our site but essentially, we, we work uh, and our plans are to continue to work in communities and with organisations um, around 
zero suicide strategies and policies where we're now having regular talks with uh, with the UK government, which has been a big step forward through the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, but even I couldn't get them to include the word suicide prevention in the new minister's title yesterday. Um, but um, we, we did try. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, that, that's really what our work is about. So what I'd say for the Jordan Legacy um, is that we do a lot of work. We're looking to partner with organisations. So again, the jordanlegacy.com, look at how you can support us there on the menu. Um, we can come into organisations and help you with everything from, you know, running a workshop on these issues to, um, to delivering talks, to actually sitting down with you on a consultancy basis to talk about your wellbeing culture and, even things such as zero suicide plans. And just one final point on that, you know, I have heard this one client say, well, why would we want a zero suicide plan? Uh, because we've never had any suicides at our company. I said, that's exactly why you need a zero suicide prevention plan. Yeah. Over to you, Ryan. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Can't believe they said that, to be fair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's worth talking about. Um, we are what we say on the tin. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, we talk about their mental health and maybe not even call it your mental health. Just call it the, your life challenges. Um, like I said earlier on, employment, money, housing, whatever it may be that you're struggling with. Um, talk about it. The best way to find a solution to any problem is to share it and the more times you share it the easier that problem becomes because you've got more ideas on how to deal with it um, and yeah what we do is we listen and we give advice and support based upon my experience and the people of the, the groups that are, in, that are attending they've all got their own stories they're all going through their own journeys at the moment some are further ahead than others some are more in crisis than others um, some are still self-harming, but they're self-harming less than they used to do because they've come for support. Um, and there's, there's ways out of everything. Um, we, we don't want any more Jordans. We don't want any more Toms or Sams or Alexes or Ellens. And, and the list can go on and on and on. Um, we want people to try and receive help and support um, before they hit crisis. And what... Uh, Steve has just said, uh, well, why do I need mental health support? I've never suffered. Well, that's also why you need to come and chat every now and again, um, because you learn well-being tools and coping strategies and um, maybe have more resilience for when that mental health moment comes, because a, a, a common example is bereavement. Bereavement will hit us all at some point. We will lose a family friend um, or work colleague, and it all then depends on how you deal with that. So um, if anybody's in the sort of Keithley, Bradford, Silston, Nilkley, Skipton sort of areas, and they want to chat, whether it's attending a men's group or a women's group, you can find out all details about us at itsworthtalkingabout.org. Thank you very much. Thanks for both Stephen and Ryan for their time today. And more importantly, thank you very much for all the ongoing support you're offering to hundreds and thousands and anybody you can you can support in their their journeys um, and helping them. So thank you for that. Um, genuinely, thank you.
Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chris. Stop the recording.